I'm Cody Commerce, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. The Person and the Situation is a book by social psychologists Lee Ross and Richard Nisbet, originally published in 1991. The argument made by Ross and Nisbet was that context matters. Human beings don't behave in a vacuum unaffected by the circumstances of society, history, and culture. The job of the social psychologist is to understand both the person and the situation. Without a proper appreciation of the larger context, it is impossible to know what to make of a given observation about human behavior. But a limitation of the project set out by Ross and Nisbet is that social psychology has always had a limited ability to study situations. It is, after all, psychology, not anthropology. Psychologists tend not to study humans in their natural situations. They try to recreate pared-down versions of them in the lab. It's not the same thing. This is something Ross and Nisbet, I think, appreciated. Nisbet went on to publish a book called The Geography of Thought about how people from the West think differently from people in Asia. But another way to approach this problem is not from the psychology side, at least not directly, to start not with the person, but the situation itself. This is what I like about really good travel writing. The job of a good travel writer is similar to the job of the anthropologist. It is to go to a place and get a feel for what the people there are up to, then to come back and report to the rest of us what it is you observed. But the problem with ethnographies by anthropologists is that they're usually not that fun to read, obsessed as they are with kinship structures and long-standing epistemological debates within their field. Good travel writing has the same incisive edge as an informal ethnography and has the benefit of being much more engaging. Good travel writing is an exploration of the person via the situation. For my money, the best author doing this kind of travel writing today is Erica Fatland. Erica is the author of three travel books, including Sovietistan, about the post-Soviet states of Central Asia, The Border, about the countries bordering Russia from North Korea and Mongolia to Finland and Norway, and Hai, about the countries of the Himalayas. She speaks six languages, including Russian, and is currently adding more. She also trained as a social anthropologist for her master's degree, which probably goes away toward explaining where that incisive edge came from. Erica's approach to travel writing incorporates her own travel experiences with deep readings of a country's historical, cultural, and economic circumstances. More than other travel writers I've read, she relies on her conversations with people she meets and the places she goes, usually finding at least one common tongue between them, and using these interviews as a foundation for her own observations. In this conversation, we talk about the point of travel— Erica's formative experiences and how she became a travel writer, her approach to writing, how her relationship with Russia has changed through the years, and some of her favorite and least favorite countries she's visited. Also, just a heads up, the audio quality isn't the best on this episode. Erica was calling in from her temporary apartment in Lisbon, and I was calling in from the Vietnamese countryside with a shaky internet connection. It's not ideal, but I'm just thankful we were able to make it happen at all. As always, you can find the full feed of my work at themeaninglab.com. That's themeaninglab.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving The Meaning Lab podcast a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and without any further ado, here is my conversation with Erica Fatland. I want to start off with a difficult question and just sort of see what you have to say on it and put it up here front and see if we get any more purchase on it throughout the conversation. But what, in your opinion, is the point of travel? Well, I think humans have always traveled and that's why you will find human settlements all over the globe. So we are from the very beginning nomads. Uh, so I think it comes kind of natural for us. I mean, you would you would never really see a dog or a horse or a giraffe, you know, just you know, traveling just to visit the neighboring giraffes to see how they are doing. So this is something specifically human. Um, I think it's linked to curiosity, um, for me at least. Um, 
But very often, I must admit, I the part of travel I enjoy the most is uh, when I'm back home again, and it's all just a distant memory. Because traveling is also, I mean, um, my life in Norway is very comfortable. I live in a very comfortable flat. I have a very comfortable office and so on. So traveling means leaving this comfort and venturing out into the unknown. And that is, of course, also the, the attraction. What would you say was your, your first formative travel experience that really, you know, kind of put you on this track of, of, of really going further and deeper in travel? Well, I would say the, probably the most formative experience was um, when I went to France. So, so not to a very exotic place, um, not to a very far away place from Norway, but uh, I'm from quite a small village in Norway with 2,000 inhabitants. And as a teenager, I was longing to get away from there. And I didn't have many friends. And, well, it was a very small place. So, and then there was this um, exchange program that Norwegian pupils, uh, high school students, could uh, take three years, do the whole baccalaureate in French, uh, in, uh, in France. And so I got admitted to the program in Lyon. And that meant leaving my village as a 16-year-old, having to learn a new language, having to adapt into a new, very different school system, uh, also having to manage all these kinds of practical problems. Uh, if the gas went out, we had to call the gas company and explain the problem in French and so on. But I think this just made uh, made me feel very um, independent somehow. And I felt that, okay, having mastered this at the age of 16, well, now everything is possible. I can go anywhere. And, and I think uh, this is crucial. I think more, more young people should do this. I'm kind of worried now that uh, doing an exchange year is not as common that it used to be. And having a gap year before you start university seems like it's not that common anymore. Uh, but I think uh, it's really important because you are so formative. You're so shapeable when you're young. Here's something that I'm just kind of, curious about hearing you talk about those early experiences is the importance of transcending your comfort zone, so to speak. And when you are a a young Norwegian teenager in a very small village, the set of places you can go to transcend your comfort zone is pretty much all like anywhere else, you know, uh, like you were describing. And as your life has, has gone on, you've traveled more and more, how do you deal with the expanding... Does it still feel important to continue to expand your comfort zone in that way? And what does that look like for you now? Oh, well, I am expanding my comfort zone or leaving my comfort zone uh, all the time. But that is right now, it's, it's very linked to my, my profession uh, because now I have become a travel writer, which was never really my plan. My plan initially was to become a novelist and write remarkable novelists, novels that would change the, the history of literature. That hasn't happened so far, but I am very happy writing travel books. As of now, that is a profession, and I really love it because it also forces me to travel in a specific way. I have to get out of my comfort zone on a daily basis because I have to engage with people. I have to talk with people. I have to go to to places I would never have gone on just a vacation, just to relax. Uh, but now I'm doing it for the purpose of the book, um, which is always kind of my leading star. Um, and that is not the most comfortable way of traveling, but it, it's definitely the most interesting way of traveling. Now, for instance, I'm, I'm working on a book about the Portuguese empire, and that has led me to visit places I would never have gone elsewhere, I promise you. And I wouldn't really recommend anyone to go there, um, like Guinea-Bissau, one of the most underdeveloped countries in the world. Um, did not really enjoy my, my stay there that much, I must admit. But now, having come back safely from Guinea-Bissau, 
Guinea-Bissau is what I talked the most about because it was um, most interesting. So yeah, I I want to kind of pick on pick up on that in that approach in your in your career as a travel writer, and also try and place it in you know your your formative experiences. So on, on your website biography, you write, "I am a trained social anthropologist, but never had a proper job." So. As someone who just finished his his training in social psychology and also aspires never to have a proper job, uh, I'd kind of like to ask, A, for self-centered reasons, you know, what has that looked like for you and, and, and what did that, how did that come about? And then I also want to ask how you, does is there an overlap there that you kind of think of your travel writing as informal ethnography? So could you maybe uh, speak a little bit to, to that and if there's, there's pieces to connect there? Well, to be honest, it was never my plan to become a social anthropologist. I just realized that at the age of 18, I could not live of being a writer, which was my plan or my dream. So I realized I had to, or the, the easiest way to not getting a job was to start studying something and having an education wouldn't harm me. Uh, so, I mean, also the the, the, the whole university university system in, in Norway is quite different from from in the United States. Um, it's free, and you get a scholarship kind of automatically from the government, so you can study for five six years without having a huge debt. Uh, how has social anthropology shaped me? That's a very difficult question because I don't know what I would have done if I had not studied social anthropology. It certainly um, kind of coincidentally led me to travel writing. and But first it led me to nonfiction because um, I wrote my master thesis about Beslan and the, the hostage crisis in Beslan and the aftermath, how people, how this small society in Islam was coping after this terrible um, event. It happened in 2004, and, and many of you will probably remember uh, when it was a school, it was the first day of school, and a group of terrorists attacked the school and chased everyone, children, uh, grandparents, parents, into the gym, and they were staying there for three days uh, without water, without food, without anything, and then on the third day, there was a huge explosion, and um, this ended with the death of more than 300 people, most of them children. And it, this is a small place with a little more than 30,000 inhabitants. So I went there three years after to do my master thesis, to do my field work for the master thesis. It was a quite a dramatic um, field work because this was still when the um, so-called anti terror operation was ongoing. Uh, we would call it the war in Chechnya, uh, but uh, the, this uh, renaming of wars is nothing new in, in Putin's polit po uh, politics. Uh, I had to have two armed bodyguards uh, during the whole time I was there, but I did manage to talk with people uh, and do what I came there for. But what I wanted to do the whole time really was to just tell these stories um, because the encounters were so so strong, and I felt these were kind of very important stories to tell the world um, about how these brave people were coping afterwards, and, and it was not going very well. Uh, let me just say that. Uh, but then, of course, I had to write the master thesis, and who will read a master thesis? It's your mother, your boyfriend, and then the few professors. If you have a boyfriend who's willing to read your master's thesis, he sounds like an absolute keeper, because I don't know if that's guaranteed with the territory. <laughs> yeah, he's a keeper. We are married now. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. But uh, he's a writer too, a novelist. Um, anyway, um, also when you write the master thesis, you're trapped in these formulas and theories, and I really hated that. So after I finished the thesis, I... Uh, got a grant to go back to Bislan and I could develop all of this into a book. And th that's how I started writing nonfiction, although it was never really the plan. And then it just kind of expanded from there. 
So you mentioned France, and I think you've kind of given a, a way into, into Russian here, but you're an accomplished language learner. You speak English, German, French, Italian, and Russian, in addition to your native Norwegian. And it also sounds like you're in the process of, of picking up Portuguese and, and Arabic. Um, but I, I want to ask you about the Russian in particular. You mentioned before we started that Dostoevsky was one of the things that got you really into the language, crime and punishment. So what, what did that initial connection with the country and the language look like for you? And how have your feelings about that country changed over time? Well, Russian is difficult. It's not as difficult as Arabic, um, but it's still very, very difficult. Um, so to learn Russian just takes a lot of time and effort. Um, I would say now my my Russian is not perfect, um, but it's functional. So I can travel in Russia and other Russian-speaking countries and make myself understood, and even more importantly, understand what people are talking saying to me, which was my goal, and which has come in very very handy. And my first meeting, my first encounter with Russia. It was when I still didn't know any Russian. Then I was uh, going to high school in, in Finland because after two years in France, I got kind of um, uh, impatient. And I wanted, I felt, well, can't, I've stayed two years in France. I, I, I know French by now. I know the school system. I have to move on. <laughs> so um, then I spent the last year in Finland. And then you're very close to Russia. So uh, one weekend, I joined a bus trip uh, with one of the teachers filled with uh, mostly pensioners and retired people, and we went to St. Petersburg. But on the way, we stopped in uh, Viborg, and Viborg used to be part of Finland until the Second World War, up until the Winter War. And this was, now it's more than 20 years ago. So that means that many of the people on the bus, those old people, um, some of them were born in Viborg or they had family from Viborg. So they could remember how this city had looked like. And it used to be the second biggest city of Finland and it used to be one of the most beautiful cities of Finland. And I remember some of the passengers just bursting into tears when they saw what had become of their um, birth city. Because... um, Somehow, everything in Russia just falls apart. They are not very good at maintenance. Uh, so that was my first impression of Russia. And then, of course, in Pittsburgh, it's something quite different. It's a very beautiful city. Well, it's in the city center. Uh, but that was my first brutal impression. And that kind of continued because Russia is a very brutal place. It's not a very pleasant place. And people are not necessarily very nice to you, especially if they have some kind of they wear a uniform and have some kind of power, then they um, tend to be quite bullish. Uh, and that was a shock to me. And uh, when I came to back to Russia the second time, that was some years later, and I was doing a summer course in Russian, and um, I stayed in Tsarskaya Selo, that's just outside of St. Petersburg, and I had decided to go all in because I was studying social anthropology after all. And I had decided to do my field work in Russia. So I thought, well, I have to go all in. So I was placed with, an, I was supposed to live with a family, but they just placed, the language school placed me with an old babushka in one of those gray Khrushchev apartments. Um, and they all looked the same. So I got lost every day, just trying the key in every door until I found the building that was mine. And that was like a second cultural shock. I had spent the spring in Guatemala studying Spanish. Guatemala is very far from Norway. St. Petersburg is a two-hour flight from Oslo, and still this was a huge cultural shock. And it was there was a heat wave in St. Petersburg that summer, so my my hostess, she would walk around naked in the apartment and she would encourage me to do the same. Uh, she was a terrible cook. I mean, I'm pretty sure she had tuberculosis and she was watching Putin on the news like, constantly. That's, that's what she did. Uh, and then it kind of dawned upon me, like, why, why Russia? 
why Russian? Why not? Why not Italy or some pleasant place? Um, but I think that is the attraction with Russia. It's this. It's not a pleasant place, but it's the, like a constant riddle. There is something you don't understand. Uh, and that said, people can be very friendly too, as long as they are not wearing wearing a uniform. Um, of course, um, now after the full scale invasion that started last year. Um, my relationship with Russia has changed a lot, and I think so has everyone else's. And I think Russia is becoming a very dark place. It's becoming a very nationalistic place. Um, I mean, they have always had these tendencies, but now it is becoming mainstream and is um, very rapidly dominating. And... Um, when I started learning Russian, uh, Russia was a kind of a hybrid authoritarian regime, and now it's a full-scale dictatorship uh, with no room for criticism. So it is becoming a very dark and gloomy place. I'm still, I'm still fascinated, and I haven't been back now for five years. And I do hope I can go back one day and write a book about Russia, but I don't want it to be a book just about Putin and politics. I want them to be a book about Russia. And Russia is so much more than just um, politics and Putin and Moscow and St. Petersburg. And there are, for example, just 193 different ethnic groups living inside of Russia. Um, I'm not an big optimist when it comes to the future of Russia, because um, what I see lacking in Russia is that like after the Second World War, not immediately after the Second World War, but uh, some decades later, in Germany, they dealt with the past, and they dealt with it quite harshly, and that has never happened in Russia. They have this kind of victim mentality. They never really dealt with the Soviet past. They never dealt with Stalinism and the gulags. And they just see themselves as, as victims. And that just doesn't make sense. It's the biggest um, country in the world. It's still an empire. And they see themselves as victims. But I think that's what you know, justifies the war, the ongoing imperial war in Ukraine. Well, that was the former question. Now to how I get my ideas... Uh, well, when I started writing travel books, and Sovietistan was the first one, and um, as I said, I never planned to write travel books or become a travel writer, uh, but I just had one day, this title was inside my head, Sovietistan, and I thought, well, that is a nice title. I should write a book with that title. And of course, that was then a book about the Central Asian countries that used to be part of the Soviet a union that had been independent since 1991 and ending with Stan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and so on. And for me, it was curiosity. I was curious about those places. Um, you don't hear very much about them. Um, what, what had happened to them? How were they um, affected by their uh, time in the Soviet Union? Because these countries are very different from the Russian mainstream culture, for instance. These are Muslim countries. They speak Turkish and Persian languages and so on. Uh, they were nomads uh, up until the 1920s. Um, so I was just curious. And I think curiosity is the main drive when it comes to both writing and, and traveling. It has to be interesting. There has to be something you want to figure out. So what... Um... In Sovietistan, what was the which country surprised you the most? All of them, kind of, uh, because they're very different from each other. Um, in Norwegian, we have this word "far away Stan," and that is how people tended to talk about those countries because we knew nothing about them, and um, yeah, just these kind of strange, far away countries. But but they are five countries, and they are very different from each other. Um, just to take the nature, uh, Turkmenistan is 80% desert, um, Kazakhstan is mostly flat, um, Tajikistan is 97% mountains, so they are very different in that way. Um, I was, I did know, of course, before I went to Turkmenistan and my, my journey started in Turkmenistan, I did know that this was a dictatorship and 
uh, are kind of very uh, ruled by a very eccentric dictator. But I think nothing can prepare you for for Ashgabat, the capital, when you see all these white marbled houses, all these empty streets. Um, it's it's such a strange place, and it's so ruled by just one man. So that was a surprise. Uh, definitely, and after that, um, it's, it's, it's difficult to be shocked by a dictatorship any longer. This is the gentleman who renamed bread after his mother, if I'm not mistaken. Is that the one that you, that you reported on? That is the former dictator. He's, he, t- he's t- uh. he took the name Menbashi, which means the leader of all Turkmen. Uh, his name was Saparmurat Niazov in reality, but he died to his own surprise in 2006. Um, just before he died, he had broadcasted to probably very frightened Turkmen people that he would live for another 20 years. He said his German doctors had promised him that, and then he died shortly after. And he was followed by his um, dentist. It's a remarkable career. Um Gurbanguli Bardi Mohammedov, which very sh- soon took the name Ash, uh, ah, now I can't remember, um, the protector, it would translate to in, in English. And people would, there were some hopes linked to him that now things will change for the better in Turkmenistan, uh, but very soon he became also obsessed um, with his own ego and um, I mean, and that is probably very interesting for you as um, a psychologist. Um, what does it do to a person when you have unlimited power and you are surrounded by people who will just say yes, yes, whatever you say? I think that changes the person. So there's something that I, I want to get at for any traveler, there's kind of a disconnect between the experience that you have and the way that you can render that account for people back home. And I think this is common when you're just sort of talking amongst your friends at a dinner party. They clearly had this very formative experience, whatever it was, trying this food, seeing this place, whatever it is. But coming back and trying to report on that and communicate what happened is this kind of gulf that I think is very, very tricky to overcome. And the casual non-travel writer, I think it's very difficult for for that person to do. So I want to ask you a little bit about your style and sort of what do you think makes for a compelling travelogue? What are you looking for to bring together uh, a piece or a book about somewhere that you visited and attempted to to understand? Well, I think there are many different travel writers, of course, but I think that there are many two main groups of travel writers. There are travel writers who write mostly about themselves, and those books can be quite good um, if they are well-written, and that goes for all literature. And then there are travel writers who write mostly about the people they encounter. Uh, and that's where I belong. I don't write very much about myself and my own experience and, and how that would transform me because, frankly speaking, I, I'm not very interesting. Uh, I kind of have a very boring inner life. Uh, so that would be very boring books. And my interest, my curiosity is always towards the people that I meet. So... I think sometimes I work more like a journalist and I do interviews and I talk with people. And when I write, um, that is my main focus to transform those interviews, those encounters, try to render that as good and as uh, truly as, as possible into writing. And I also feel this responsibility because this is someone's story and I should be true to that person's story. Um, I also always trust that my readers are very intelligent people because, I'm, of course, they are. They're reading my books. So I try not to over-explain um, because I know that my readers can read in between the lines. Uh, but I do like your question because it doesn't really matter how good research I do, how much traveling I do, how many interesting encounters I have. 
course, it helps. But if I cannot render that into um, a text that reads well, a good description, then it's it's useless because all the reader has um, it's those pages in the books, and it has to come alive on those pages. So that is the main job. It's the writing. I kind of have my own personal theory about your uh, your own style and your own the, what, where your your power derives from and the accounts that that you bring back. And I think it's slightly different than the sort of dichotomy that you presented. So let me let me try it on for you. But I think a lot of travel writers, their power from their accounts come from these highly stylized renderings of their experience. And, and like you were saying, a lot of them talk about themselves and. Uh, it maybe kind of fluff it up as 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 exciting. For example, I think Bill Bryson would be someone like this, where it sometimes feels like he's more going for, you know, creating these characters in a Dickens novel than actually trying to bring across some concrete individual he's actually met. Um, on the other hand, I like his experiences and what he's doing uh, uh, is fairly banal, straightforward, both in, in terms of the activities and in the destinations. I mean, uh, for the English-speaking world, particularly the U.S., U.K., continental Europe, Australia, that sort of thing. And I kind of view you as the inverse of that, because what you really succeed at, in my opinion, in your writing, is you go to these fantastic, almost otherworldly sort of locations. And what really makes your work so powerful is that the reader feels like they're getting a description of things as they really happen and as they actually are that's very uh, high fidelity in, in, in just sort of the visual perception or the, the, the encounter that you had. And so anything which comes across as fantastic then must be that way because that's actually a reflection of the place that you were visiting and not because you're putting this sort of spin or panache on it. And I think that's one of the things that, in my reading of your writing, has made the, uh, uh, your work and, and exploring these kind of off-the-beaten-path, complicated, and at times fantastical locations come so alive on, on the page. Does that feel like a, do you, do you buy that, uh, <laughs> that, you know, sort of understanding of, of your style and, and, and how you approach your writing? Well, it sounded very flattering to me. Um, of course, all writing, even nonfiction, as when you start writing, it somehow becomes fiction because it's never a one-to-one rendering of the real world. Um, I have to uh, make shortcuts. Um, it's all my perceptions. Um, so, I mean, the, the limit between fiction and nonfiction is not as big as one would think. Um, but I think as a nonfiction writer, I do have this contract with the, the reader that what you read should be trusted, what you read should have happened, what you read should be true. And as a travel writer, um, it's more... It's very difficult for the reader to check. Did she really meet that person on that train in Uzbekistan? Did he really say that? Uh, it would be very easy for me to invent and count this and no one could really check it. Uh, but I, I do promise you, um, I don't. And I must also say that as I have written now several travel books myself, I have become very picky but I mean, that happens with age you don't want to watch just any movie or read any book but especially with travel books because that's what I do myself and I also find that many travel writers especially men tend to exaggerate to dramatize because I have written some travelogues um, as research to places I was going to visit and then I go to those same places and it's like, oh, come on, it's not that steep. Oh, come on, it's not that difficult. Uh, they tend to dramatize a lot. And that also makes me mm, read travelogues, especially by male writers, with suspicion. So that, that kind of brings up something else I want to ask you about is how does your experience as traveling as a woman, particularly 
traveling alone, and oftentimes in countries that may have different sort of norms than your native Norway or other places in the world. How does your experience as a woman shape your experience as a traveler and, all, and the accounts that you, that you bring back as a writer? I write an essay about this once, and I, I try to remember the title. Um, in English, it would be something like uh, an, a traveling alien, because that is how I'm perceived many places. They just seem as very strange, a woman traveling by herself, um, her poor husband sitting by himself for weeks and months in Norway, um, no children. What is this creature? Uh, so they just seem as something very strange. Um, but that said, I think it's a huge advantage to be a female travel writer because in many places, uh, especially in the very traditional places, um, Muslim places like um, Pakistan. Um, m- many of the places I visited in Pakistan would be uh, inaccessible to a male writer. They would not be allowed to enter the village. They would not be allowed to enter the family home. And many places my male guide and the interpreter had to be left outside in some male guest house where he was drinking tea with other men. And I was let inside. And uh, so I, of course, I can talk with the men. The men will talk with anyone. But I can also talk with the women who in many places would never be allowed to talk to a male stranger. So I think it's a huge advantage. Um, I I can access both worlds. And uh, somehow, I mean, the the most common question I get when I give talks is, um, is it not very dangerous to travel the world alone as a woman. Somehow people seem to think it is a disadvantage and that it's very uh, dangerous to travel alone as a woman. And of course, there are some risks that that men would not have, um, but mostly people are kind, mostly people are helpful. Um, Of course, you have to use your common sense. I would never, ever go to a bar and and have too much to drink so that I could not take care of myself. But I wouldn't do that in Oslo either. So so you have to use your common sense. But um, I think the advantages are much, much bigger than the disadvantages. I can also imagine that that's the case given that there is such a long history of perspective, male perspective, in the travelogue genre. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, not only like uh, sort of more recent writers like Paul Thoreau, Bruce Chatwin, H.V. Morton, that sort of stuff, but even going back to Alexander von Humboldt, Marco Polo, even Batuta, uh, it feels like there's so much male domination in the history of that. Definitely a lot of great female travel writers. Um, I count, you know, contemporary writers like Cheryl Strayed and Elizabeth Gilbert up there. Uh, but as well as luminaries like Rebecca West, uh, Freya Stark, that sort of thing. And maybe if we're also going to include anthropologists, uh, also Margaret Mead and, and Zora Neale Hurston. But who are the people who you really look up to as travel writers, who you do uh, you know, still read their books or pick up a passage of theirs time time and think they really nailed it on how to, to bring a place alive on the page? Who do you look up to in, in the genre? Well, I must say, I am inspired by um, Colin Thoreau, Colin Thuburn, sorry, Colin Thuburn, um, who at the age of 80, 81, just published his last travel book uh, about the Amur River traveling in China and uh, Russia. I mean, I do hope I can still be uh, as active um, in, in 40 years from now. That would be a dream. So that's very inspiring. Um, another travel writer I value highly, uh, although he is controversial, is uh, Richard Kapuczynski, the um, Polish writer. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, my Polish friend actually uh, brought him up uh, recently. I, I have him. I have him on a list. He wrote the Football War. Is um, the one I think that I have. Yes, and um, one of my favorite books, The Empire which is about the Soviet Union, and he is Polish, so he, he traveled as a correspondent a lot in the Soviet Union. And 
he's not very trustworthy. I would not trust him. Um, his widow had his biography stopped. So I think it's only published in French, actually. It was never published in English, if I remember correctly. Uh, but he, he took some shortcuts he shouldn't have taken. But still, his books reads amazingly, and um, his literary style is up there with some of the best novelists. So, so I think it's still very well worth reading, which again brings me back to, to my uh, former point that I mean, what happens on the book page is the most important part. Okay, so we've been talking about the craft for a little while now, but let's uh, get back to some of the uh, the countries. You mentioned uh, that Guinea-Bissau has made a special impact on you in your recent travels. I, <laughs> I have a vague idea that it's in West Africa, but beyond that, uh, I, I can't say that I know much about it. What stood out to you about, about that place and your experience there? Okay, so now I'm, I just... I'm in this limbo right now because I, I'm working on this book about the Portuguese Empire and I have now finished almost all of the travel research. So I've been traveling for more than a year, more or less constantly. It was a, it was a huge empire uh, from going down the African coast and continuing in Asia to, to India, um, but also, uh, also to places that I lost uh, quite quickly to, to the Dutch, um, like Malacca, um, like um, um, some islands in Indonesia and even Japan. The, the Portuguese were the first Europeans to trade with Japan. So it was a huge empire. And let's not forget Brazil. And Guinea-Bissau was one of the colonies that Portugal got and stubbornly kept until 1975. And it's a, it's a very small country, um, one and a half million inhabitants, and it is a, an extremely underdeveloped country. Um, if you look at the statistics, they do very well in all the statistics. You don't want to be on the top list, like childhood mortality, uh, etc. Their main source of income is cashew nuts and... Uh, drug smuggling, because it's a huge hub somehow from uh, South America through Guinea-Bissau and then somehow to Europe. I have not figured out how this route works, but it's a huge source of income for Guinea-Bissau. Um, on the bright side, uh, um, unless you like stay away from the drug smuggling and, and never pick up a bag in the jungle that you don't know what is, you don't do that. It's a very safe country because there are no tourists there, so they don't have any uh, crime related to tourists, and there are very few rich people, so they don't really have any crime related to rich people either. Uh, they have one paved street in the capital, and that's the only paved street in the entire country. And usually, in, 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 in when you travel, you can pay yourself out of discomfort. You can hire a car and a driver, and hence avoid public transport, not in Guinea-Bissau, because there are no private cars, almost. And so you are stuck with those um, once East German minibuses that still drives the dusty roads of Guinea-Bissau. They have some beautiful islands. Um, look, they look like Bahamas, just outside of the coast, but they have no boats. So it's, it's a very difficult uh, country to travel around in. And also, I guess to finish on Guinea-Bissau, on one of those remote islands, I mean, if you read the guidebook, it will say that it's a matriarchy. I wouldn't say so, because it was when I started asking people, the men had the last word. But in some of those islands, they have developed some very strange rituals, uh, like one that we visited, they didn't have electricity, not because they couldn't have it, but because they didn't want to have it, because they wanted to stay traditional. And on this island, they had this uh, rite passage. They had several of them. And the last one, um, if you wanted to become a man, I mean, you could get married, you could have children, 
And so um, before reaching this stage, but then around 40, that's when, when the men would tend to do this last passage. Uh, because if you wanted to have your own house, to move out from your uh, own family's house and have your own house with your own family, you had to pass this um, route de passage. And that consisted of going into the jungle on this quite small island and living isolated by yourself, not seeing other people, leaving, if you had kids and, and wife, leaving them behind, saying goodbye forever, and stay there in the jungle, isolated, for eight years. <laughs> and then you just ask yourself, how did this come into being? What happened? Okay, so that's a, a country about which you have a certain ambivalence. Um, like you said, not always the most pleasant place to hang out. Um, not, not a beach resort sort of location, but had a, a, a certain fascination to it for, for all of the uh, unexpected and, um, you know, uh, very out there sort of stuff, as you described. Another country that you visit, which I understand from other interviews I heard you give, it's among your favorite, is Georgia, which is one that I harbor a special devotion to as well. So could you tell me about Georgia, your experience there, uh, what, what you found appealing about it, and, and I guess what people for whom that's not on their radar might be missing? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Georgia is an amazing country. Um, it's on my top list, uh, along with Italy. Um, it's a small country, so you can see all of it in quite a short time, but it is a small country that has everything. Uh, in the north, you have the Caucasus Mountains, so the tallest mountains in Europe. Um, if you want to go to the beach, you can go to the Black Sea. If you feel adventurous, you can visit the uh, breakaway Republic of Cassia. Um, they have a very charming um, capital, Tbilisi. And they have and now very, very good wine. If you visit the best restaurants in the world, you will often get served Georgian wine. And they have the best um, cuisine in the post-Soviet world. I don't know if the competition is very high, but it is the best kitchen. And uh, most importantly, they have very, very friendly and hospitable people. And they are like Italians. Um, but on the Italians on speed. Uh, so it's, it's always fun in Georgia. We will not be bored for a moment. I think the Italy comparison is actually quite apt because well, I think one thing about Georgia is that we don't really have a great conceptual box to put it in. People think that it's in Eastern Europe, and maybe culturally you could make that argument, but it's in the same longitude as... Uh, Tehran, if I'm not mistaken. Latitude-wise, it's uh, the same as Italy, though. So it's got a very similar, uh, uh, in many ways, sort of range of, of, of climates and terrains as Italy um, because of that, of that latitude. And, and I think you, you see that in there. We, we fail to appreciate that because we think, well, is, I don't know, is it Eastern Europe? Is it Central Asia? Okay, it's the Caucasus, but what does that mean? And yet there's all this incredible stuff there. The difference uh, food-wise for me with Georgia is that it sits at this nexus of the incredible culinary kingdoms of, of Turkey, Russia. Yes, I actually, I think Russia has a lot of great food. And, uh, and, and, and Iran, uh, Persia. And so you get this incredible mixture of different cultures coming through there, where the food has really become more than the sum of its parts. And like you said, this incredible wine culture, the, the oldest continuous viticultural uh, uh, culture going back to uh, 8,000 years ago. All this amazing, uh, you know, uh, different stuff that they do there. I think uh, <laughs> there's, there's so much stuff there that is both familiar in terms of the, the kind of things that people love about Italy, um, uh, but also put in these different templates that are so unexpected to the, the Western perspective and, and the Western palate. Definitely. Um, I have many readers in Italy, and usually I get very um, nice messages from them. They are very communicative. 
Uh, but I remember once there was one uh, who wrote to me about the border. Love the border, very nice book. But there is one thing, Erica. You write that you can compare the Georgian kitchen with the Italian one. How can you say that, Erica? I mean, the, the Georgian kitchen is just one kitchen, but in Italy we have so many different kitchens. How can you compare? And I just had to apologize and say, no, you're absolutely right. How could I do that terrible mistake and comparing the Italian and Georgian kitchen? Of course, the, the Italian kitchen <laughs> can't compare. That, that is probably the only response you could give. <laughs> so here, um, as, as we sort of get to the end uh, a little bit. I, I, there's something that I want to break up. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's 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 going to uh, come somewhere. But there's this there's so my first academic love was cognitive science, and one of my favorite cognitive scientists was this man named Herb Simon. And now Herb Simon, he was not only a founder in the field of CogSci, but also artificial intelligence, where he created like some of the first chess playing programs back before they even like had computers. So he literally wrote out the programs by hand and he came up with like these ideas, like bounded rationality, which were the basis for like Daniel Kahneman's work to develop behavioral economics and go on to win a Nobel prize. So he's this big deal as an academic, but in his autobiography, there's this line where he's like, okay, I've got this idea, which he calls the travel theorem. And he claims that this is his most controversial idea that he ever put forth sure to elicit these sputtering disagreements from any colleague he puts it to. And so the theorem says, I'm going to read from the the quote here, uh, anything that can be learned by a normal American adult on a trip to a foreign country of less than one year's duration can be learned more quickly, cheaply, and easily by visiting the San Diego Public Library. So in other words, uh, he's kind of making this claim that, that travel is intellectual cheesecake, that you can justify it all you want, but at the end of the day, you're doing it because you, you like it, because it's fun. So what do you make of this idea? What do you think of, of what we get out of physically going somewhere and seeing the things that you've described and having this comfort zone expanding experience and temporarily leaving the the sort of comfortable habitual environment of our home to have to fend for ourselves in the wider world and then come back and appreciate this what 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 do you what do you make of of that idea and and that claim and 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 where do you think going out there and experiencing the world really gets us something that we wouldn't otherwise understand okay well well first of all of course i'm kind of like the idea of people going to the public library and or even better if they would go to the bookshop and buy my books and, and read them and travel that way. Um, and I think reading is a very powerful tool because it's just you and the book. And unless, unlike internet TV, you are creating um, your own a video, your own images inside of your head. So it is a very um, empathetic tool and it, it can develop and change a person for sure. And when I was living in my, my, my village in Norway, I didn't travel that much, but I had the public library and I went there every Saturday um, and, and reading books and that way traveling. So I think reading... It's powerful. People should read, and especially now when you have so much competition from YouTube, from Instagram, etc. And I've been asked that quite the same questions, but in a less appealing way. Like, why should why write travel books now that you have Instagram and Insta travelers, uh, etc. And when you have TV, why would people read a, a travel book? Well, I think there is something special about the encounter with one person and the book. With that said, um, I think, as I said, to begin with, I think it's very transformative for people to travel. It's something different of just seeing a place on, on a photo and actually being there physically with your body. That's very different things. And I would encourage people to travel um, out of the beaten track 
which is not difficult at all. People keep saying that the world keeps um, getting smaller and smaller. That's not true. The, the world is exactly the same size as it has ever been. And uh, if anything, it's getting bigger because the population is getting bigger and the changes changes are happening quicker. Um, the people should get out of the beaten track and because when, when you're kind of losing control, that is when you will have, when you get out of the comfort zone, that is when you will have surprises. And that is when you are most likely to have these um, meetings, um, these beautiful meetings, um, these non-planned encounters that um, travel consists of. Uh, then, of course, there is also the aspect of climate change and is it sustainable uh, is tourism sustainable um, and I should not have too strong meanings about that because I travel uh, more than anything and my my footprint uh, I don't even want to think about it um, but I think people should read and travel I don't think there is a either or it's just an and yeah so I'll ask you one final question here. What are three books that have most influenced the way you think? So as I mentioned when we started talking, uh, it's definitely Crime and Punishment by, by Dostoevsky uh, because that book made me want to learn Russian and learning Russian has transformed my life. Um, my plan learning Russian was to read Crime and Punishment in Russian, and I have already read about 12 pages. Um, it's a lifelong project. Um, another book would be The Empire by Kapuscinski that I already mentioned, because it shows you what, what travel literature, if you want to call it that, uh, can be. Um, it's a very... Uh, what's the word... Uh, I don't find the word, but, but just read the book and you will see for yourself. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And then, thirdly, there are so many, when you make this list, it's, it's kind of unfair because there are so many books that would be on my top three. Uh, but if I would have to choose a last one, I would go to the children author Astrid Lindgren and her book about the brothers Lionheart, which I read as a child. And also it's a beautiful and sad story and that shows you, just like we just talked about, how you can travel in your imagination to, to different worlds, quite literally. Erica, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Oh, it was a pleasure. That was my conversation with Erica Batland. Thank you for listening. If you're hearing this, you're currently a premium subscriber to The Meaning Lab. So let me just say first off, thank you. I really do appreciate your support. I'm currently testing out models for what to do with premium subscriptions and everything like that, but I am going to start truncating the podcast uh, for free subscribers and uh, premium subscribers will get the full thing. Also, at the end here, I'm planning on giving just a little bit more personal rundown of what I've been up to and what I thought of the interview. Um, so one thing is that I have recently been cutting basically, you know, a couple at, at the beginning of this year, I was asking people to do an hour and a half interviews. I personally like hour and a half podcasts. That's kind of my, my favorite sort of thing, but I felt like I wasn't uniformly getting a good hour and a half from people not because it was their fault, but because I was still putting in some fluff on my interview questions. And so one thing that I've been doing recently is only ask people for an hour of their time. It's a little bit easier to edit and do the transcript for. It's a little easier to prepare for. And it's a little easier for people to say yes to as well. And so dialing all that back a little bit allows me to try and focus in on exactly what I want to ask and get there sooner rather than later, which is something that I'm working on both in my, my interviewing skills and in my writing at the moment, sort of a, a walk before you can run sort of thing. So that that's kind of what I've been doing on that front. And as for this interview, it was really fun to talk to Erica because I've been reading her work for a few years now, and I really do think she's one of the best travel writers in the game. If I were to think about how to do this 
this interview better next time. I think I would be more direct with her. I think I was asking a lot of abstract questions, you know, such as what's the nature of travel, which reflect maybe the way that I think about things, but not necessarily the best way that she thinks about things. I I I think she actually gave a, a nice answer. But when you listen to this interview, other interviews with Erica, clearly what she's most at home with are sort of retailing facts and uh, anecdotes and historical historical exposition about the places that she's been and studied. And uh, I think that's also what comes through really well in her writing. So um, I probably would have gone for that a little bit more directly and asked her some more point-blank questions about just the practical ways that she uh, she goes about traveling. So I think I, I think I could have tightened that up a little bit. At any rate, uh, thank you for being a paid subscriber to The Meaning Lab. I appreciate your support. And as always, I'll be back here next week with another episode of The Meaning Lab Podcast. <laughs>